this idea of what does it mean to be human again in the world is where the Sermon on the Mount leads us. This is the little teaching series we find ourselves in currently. We're situated in the Beatitudes, and we're going to be working our way through the Sermon on the Mount for a, a while. <laughs> and we're, we're about halfway through. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. We're going to go to some other scriptures as well, but that's where we're going to start ourselves. And um, if you are able, I know that you all just got like comfy cozy, as my three-year-old would say, um, but if you're able to stand, please join me for the reading of God's word. There's, there's something about responding and honoring God in the, in the words that Jesus himself spoke with our body. So there's nothing um, mystical, I suppose, to standing other than it is for us to integrate that this is, this is the word of the Lord. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. <laughs> oh, goodness. So in uh, 167 BC, uh, this guy rolled onto the scene in the midst of a power vacuum. His name's Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was the ruling king of the Seleucid Empire. Um, and this, this king was uh, presumably out on uh, in Egypt, and um, heard of a coup taking place in Judea, in Jerusalem particularly. And so he turns his ire toward Judea and Jerusalem because he's ruling over this region as the Greek king of the Seleucid Empire, and, and you cannot revolt in that space. So Antiochus Epiphany turns toward there, and there's uh, scholars and historians don't really agree altogether why he went back. But what we see recorded in the Catholic and Orthodox history it goes like this. This is from 2 Maccabees 5. When these happenings were reported to the king, the coup, he thought that Judea was in revolt. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death and the same name, number being sold into slavery. In total, Antiochus Epiphanes outlawed Judaism. He did so by banning circumcision, which if you don't know what that is, you can Google it later, but it is the covenant marker. It's the marker of covenant faithfulness for the people of God. So he outlaws Judaism, bans circumcision, and then to add insult to injury, he erects a, a, an idol of Zeus in the temple. And to make things worse, then goes about sacrificing pigs in that space. This is like utter desecration, utter defilement. If, are you familiar with kosher? Not that you eat kosher, but you see it stamped on some of your foods. Well, there were, this idea is the, there's these laws that come to the people of Israel to set them apart in the world that they're living in. And these are laws that are given to help um, honor, and some of them are odd, like no shellfish, what's that all about? Or if you're wearing like a cotton poly blend right now, you're not living by the law, like only one. So what is this? It's a distinction. It's, a, it's to set themselves apart in the social fabric of the world. And this is one of those distinctions. Pigs were seen as defiled. Not, don't moralize it altogether, but it's like this is unclean, this is clean. If you touched a pig, you would go through a, a ritual cleansing and then you'd be clean. 
And so Antiochus Epiphanes goes in there. He, he bans the markers, and then he defiles the places that are the most holy. This is what it looked like to rule in that time and place. You see, in, in the face of this horrific act of violence, and what we just heard about and what was recorded in Maccabees, that is horrific violence. And in, light, in, in the face of this violence, there's a Jewish priest named Mattathias who had a son named Judah, pretty epic name, Judah the Hammer. Come on now, Judah. anyways. So um, the hammers, as uh, don't think hammer time, but think, anyways. So they led this successful guerrilla war against Antiochus Epiphanes. And over a course of a, of a number of days, they ended up being able to take back a besieged city. And so they rededicated the city and then they rededicated the temple. But what, what they ended up doing is in order to do this, there was intense acts of retributive violence, of vengeance, and then there was cleansing. And curiously, this is the backdrop to Hanukkah. I, don't know if it, I mean, it's not like what people are celebrating. When people celebrate Hanukkah, they're celebrating God's provision because there was only enough oil to light one lamp, the, what we know as the menorah, but it stretched the eight days, which is the duration it takes to press olives and get the oil. So that's like the, the thing that are like, I don't know, you'd see your Jewish brothers and sisters, maybe your neighbors doing, but the backdrop to that story is one of retributive violence. It's a horrific story. This, and, and it doesn't start with the Greeks. It actually starts among the Jews who are complicit with the Greeks. It's intense. You could just go read one and two Maccabees and find yourself going like, oh my gosh, this, this what does this have to do with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount? Well, as Jesus begins to teach in Matthew 5, this story is lingering in the air. This is just over 150 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And the, the Hasmonean dynasty was about 100 years where there was, quote unquote, peace. And now when Jesus is there, the people are again displaced by a different empire with a similar flavor and flair for the dramatic. And by that, I mean they were just as violent. These are the Romans. And so as Jesus is teaching and as he's opening up this kind of preamble to the Sermon on the Mount and making these claims, there's, I just imagine that there's this question in the air. Will this Jesus of Nazareth, this healer, this, I don't know, maybe some people think he's a mystic, but certainly a teacher, will he also wield a hammer? But what does Jesus say? It's our teaching text. Let's hear it again. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Jesus blesses a different type of movement. He reorients those people. What he, it doesn't sound surprising, but it is. It is. It's scandalous even for Jesus to say things like this because Jesus gives no oxygen for the fire of retributive violence. He doesn't feed that. Instead, he stands against it. And he starts talking about earthy things. He starts talking about inheritance. And he starts talking about the meek. These are not the things that you want to hear from somebody who you're hopeful might wield a hammer. But there's Jesus talking about this. And so to encounter this announcement, which I'm, I'm thinking is an announcement of hope, Let's just, let's just start with this word meek. This word in the Greek is this word praus. Go ahead and say that with me. Praus. So this, uh, this is a pretty rare word in the New Testament. It occurs only four times in the New Testament. 
And three of those times are in the gospel according to Matthew. And it's, it, the other time is in Peter, and he's talking about Sarah, but we're, we're not going to go there. But of these four times, when you start to look at this composite sketch, and, and three occurrences is not like a wealth of data, but those three occurrences paint a really compelling image. And this is what, what I mean. So we have our teaching text, and then we have Matthew eleven twenty nine. You can flip or tap your way on over there. It'll... Um, It'll be up on the screen. This is a pretty famous scene. We know about this scene. This is uh, Jesus. Maybe you've seen it like cross-stitched on a pillow or something like that. This is uh, take my yoke. And Jesus says in that moment that he describes himself as gentle or prouse and humble in heart. Jesus is appealing to people who are carrying a burden. And he says it's, it's like you have this like 50-pound backpack on. And have you ever seen, I don't know, like, um, I don't know, middle schoolers or elementary kids when um, then they have a backpack, but it's hanging down like by their butt? And they're kind of walking like this. Like if they take a foul step, they'll fall over. This is basically who Jesus is addressing. He's saying, okay, I know you have to carry that but let's reorient the weight. Let's redistribute it in a way that's manageable. It's like taking that backpack off and then putting it in a cart and displacing the weight, but then Jesus is there carrying it with you. This is the idea. Dane Ortland, who wrote a book on this, um, Gentle and Lowly, he riffs on it saying, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. And we're not told that he's exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he's joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle, he's prouse, and lowly in heart. That's another part of that image. Later in Matthew 21, this is another famous scene. We know this is Palm Sunday. Jesus is rolling into Jerusalem, and he's got this entourage, of, and this is kind of a crazy scene. People are like, pull, like throwing trees at him. No, they're laying down branches. They're, uh, there's kids who are screaming in the street, like, what is going on? And he's riding on a donkey. We see this, actually, that Matthew is drawing from the prophetic imagination of the people of Israel, and he ends up citing this image of what it looks like when God arrives from the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9, and we read this in Matthew 21.5. Your king, let that, let that sit with you, your king. What was Jesus doing right before the Sermon on the Mount? He was saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your king is coming to you, gentle or prouse and mounted on a donkey. This is the composite sketch of this king. And in both occurrences, Jesus is the one who's like embodying. He actually displays with his practices in his life what meekness or what gentleness or what being prouse is all about. And it's kind of confusing, too, because there's this image, and it rhymes, so it sticks, that meekness is weakness, but it's really something different. And, and to see this, to see the contrast and to feel the tension, just a few moments after Jesus rolls into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, if you just look down or scroll up uh, in Matthew 21, 12, you're going to see a different type of Jesus, but it's the same Jesus, this is, this is what we read. This is Matthew 21, 12. 
Jesus entered the temple courts, and we'll talk about that in a moment, entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So is Jesus like frustrated at the state of commerce? Like, how dare you sell things? No. The temple's a place of sacrifice. There's people coming. This is a, 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 like a large festival, so there's people who have to exchange their money, and it's, it, this is a normal practice, but he's not a, a frustrated with the state of commerce. He's frustrated with the station, literally the location of where this is going down, the temple courts. These are likely the outer courts. This is where Gentiles or God-fearing non-Jewish people would be worshiping. This, this is like, this is essentially a scene of the few oppressing the economic and ethnic minorities for their personal gain. And what's even crazier, the few are the religious people. Can we just say, this is in the Bible. This is insane. So Jesus is in there and he is flipping tables. This is the king meek and mounted on a donkey. It's the same person. It's not as though Jesus has split personalities. No, this is the same one. See, meekness is not one-dimensional. Meekness is not weakness. And, and looking through a historical lens, this, um, this scholar, Re Rebecca Eklund, she has this beautiful work called The Beatitudes Through the Ages, and she just looks at the history of interpretation, which is basically, what did the early church think about this? What did the people in the medieval age, post-Reformation, modern? And she just rolls through it. She says this about, me about meekness and gives us this beautiful picture. Meekness, by the way, if you take notes and you're like, oh, I want a definition, this is for you. Meekness may be understood as a certain kind of power. Not one, not only that of loving self-restraint, but of the ability to resist certain pressures. And this is not my parenthetical thought. This is just coming from her. Resist these types of pressures, racism, materialism, violence, and to yield to others as a self-sacrifice for a person or a planet who is suffering. Meekness willingly yields to the other and to God, not out of weakness, but as voluntary renunciation. So blessed are those who willingly yield to others and to God, for they will inherit the earth. We just have to pause right there for a moment for a couple of reasons. First, whenever we're in a church space and we talk about yielding, it can activate some stuff. We can become emotionally agitated. We maybe import some um, instances where yielding is actually frowned on because we've come from a cultural fabric that wove in submission and glorify. And so people end up getting stepped on and over. That's not what we're talking about. So there are moments where yielding could actually be violence. It's, it's, it's an odd moment. And so we have to like practice some discernment in community. This often is seen in, and this is kind of low hanging fruit, but I'll just take this example of like marital relationships where one person is over, not just overbearing, but domineering. And in some spaces that's seen as biblical. We can talk about the various interpretations, um, but if you are ever domineering a person, that is not the way of Jesus. That's not the meek king mounted on a donkey. The, the contrast with the donkey is that of a war horse. So if 
Do you feel the difference there? Do you feel how we like we have to just pause for a moment and clarify what yielding is because we carry some baggage in there. Just think about like an intersection where you're you're driving and there's a you have a yield sign or maybe you don't but a vehicle's just coming through. It would be wise to slow down but not stop, let that person get in and then drive you into a corner. You yield, you allow that to go through, and you get on your way. Now, I know that's oversimplistic, but that's just, I want to pause. If, if meekness willingly yields to the other and to God, and it's not out of weakness, but it's voluntary renunciation, we'll, we just have to work with that together in community. So just, that's the first thing we're pausing on. The second is, let's just take a breath. <laughs> Literally, just breathe it in. Because we just talked about the violent overthrow of a coup, then the retributive violence of that coup in the name of God. Then we talked about Jesus, who's announcing another way, which is this way of meekness, and that he himself embodies this way, this gentle and lowly way, and that there's some tension around this. By the way, our teaching text is one verse. So this is what's coming to us. And at a practical level, let's just hit that word yield again. What, what do most of you do during your day? And, and you don't have to respond. If you want to, you can. I, I love a little interaction, but let's try it out just for funsies. What do most of you do during your day? A, you work on a computer. You're an accountant. You're, I don't know, parenting. You're helping children not run into traffic. You're a student. Okay, I did all the answers, but some of those map onto our community. So let's just think about that. At a practical level, how does this beatitude feel? Blessed are those who willingly yield to God and to others, for they will inherit the land. How's that feel? Do you feel like a knot in your stomach? Let's just think about that word yield. Let's just linger there for a moment. How about that one? You feel a little bit sweaty? I have some assumptions about yielding and professions, and so I was kind of schooled this week by a commentator who, his name is Bruce Strom, and he comments on the early church mothers and fathers. He helped me to see something. He said this, there are many occupations, primarily the helping occupations, such as those blessed to be teachers, nurses, social workers, where meekness and humility not, are not that incompatible with the responsibilities of the job. But for those of us who or unfortunately have chosen a more ruthlessly competitive occupation in business, where profit must be made, or worse, a soldier, the capitalist corollary to this beatitude might be, and check it out, blessed are the meek in business and battle, not so much, for they shall be toast. I hope that was the uncomfortable laugh that I had when I read that. So what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus and to sit with the tension of yielding when your job is contingent on making money or the P&L? Like, what do you do with this? Like, well, hopefully we attend to some of that. By the way, we will not solve this. And, and the church is not a place where we, like, solve problems. Hopefully you go away asking more and better questions. And then we, together as a community, we will continue to walk through them. But I just want to say, like, when you hear that, blessed are the meek in business and battle not so much, for they shall be toast. What's your gut reaction after you get past the nervous laughter? How does it feel for Jesus to announce then blessing over those who willingly yield? 
And I'm not, I'm not going like, to linger here too much longer, but just to make the point abundantly clear, when we read these passages, we just have to be aware of our social location. So that includes like, the money we wake, the color of our skin, our gender identity, stuff like that. Because our social location will shape how we hear Jesus. So if, for example, in America, if you look like me, I have to yield very little in the world. It's just especially in the world we live in, and in Iowa specifically. And so as I hear this, there's something like an invitation to yield that is a little disorienting and a little uncomfortable. I, I, like I start to sweat in, for different reasons. Uh, so it feels like, oh gosh, I, I, like to defer? I have to like learn what this looks like, but... And in contrast, if you're a minority, gender, ethnic, racial, if you're a minority where yielding is just part and parcel of your cultural script, then this is also good news. Is this good news for a different reason? Because Jesus' announcement might feel something like gratitude and rest and literally a breath of fresh air because he's announcing not like if you are meek, then you'll get this. It's like in light of who you already are, I stand in solidarity with you. And by the way, you are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. Do you see how this is good news and also a bit troubling? <laughs> the Beatitudes, y'all. They're just beautiful. And this is, this is interesting because notice what the meek are going to get. They're going to get the earth, but how are they going to get it? Are they going to earn it? Are they going to fight for it? Are they going to like win a battle? No, they're going to inherit it. And inheritance is, is something that I think we get, but it is, it, it's kind of this hinge upon which this Whole pass this little verse swings because inheritance is not something you earn, it's something designated to you by birth. It's it's like this is a family deal. And and growing up, I I I didn't realize this, but as as I was reflecting on it, like I grew up with a guy who came from what you might call like old money. I think his family was a part of Pillsbury back in the day. I don't remember very well. But but his dad would just surf all day and would show, and so we played hockey. So he shows up to the rink and he's wearing like board shorts and he looks like he's got sun bleached in his face. He's like 45, but he looks like he's 80 um, because that's what the sun does to you. And, um, and his son, Tommy, did the same thing. And he was, you know, like when you're 14 and you go by Tommy, it just like has a different vibe. You think Tommy boy. Um, and now you're thinking about guys in little coats. And so this is, this is Tommy. And, you know, you wouldn't really know that they were wealthy unless you were invited to go to their house and you roll into a certain part of San Diego where I grew up and you go through a gate and you drive like a mile and a half back into these hills and then you come to another gate and then you drive to their compound. That's right, it's a compound. And, there's, and you're like, oh my gosh. And then after a while, because you've gone to Tommy's house a number of times because it's epic to play there, um, you start to hear some stuff and you realize that his parents have never really like... His, his dad, this is just what he's done. He grew up in it. And his dad's dad grew up in that. And it was really, it was the industriousness of his grandparents that brought them to this position. And I don't really keep up with Tommy, so I have no idea. But my guess is, is that he too, if he plays his cards right, will inherit this. Did Tommy earn any of this? Let me answer, no. Not the Tommy I knew. He didn't do jack squat. And yet, because of who he was, by virtue of where he was born, the family he was in, he was just going to be given this. It was designated by birth. See, inheritance, it's not that abstract. I think we get it. Maybe we don't see it a lot. But it's actually in the New Testament a bunch, too. 
18 times the, the word describing inheritance, the word in our passage shows up in the New Testament. And most of the time, it's kind of these like lofty things like uh, you'll inherit, I don't know, salvation. I mean, we actually see some of these things come about. We see Peter talks about inheriting a blessing. You see the author of Hebrews talking about inheriting a name or salvation or a promise. There's eternal life in the kingdom. These are things that you inherit, but there's only one time in the New Testament where inheritance is linked to the land. And you know who said that? Jesus in our teaching text. So why is it that Jesus is talking about inheriting the land, and maybe you just noticed, hold on, Kyle, you were talking about inheriting the earth, now you're talking about inheriting the land. Why'd you do that? I'll get to that in a moment. And to do so, let's just um, think about this backdrop where Jesus is. You think about the Hasmoneans. Think about that violent overthrow, the, them sitting as people who are in the land. Yeah, they're back in Israel, but now there's, they're like under the Roman oppressors. It's just this odd tension. So there they are. They're, they're there, but the curse of Rome is there. So it's, there's this odd thing happening. And, and Jesus is teaching in an oral tradition. And if you remember from last week, we talked about this little concept of stringing pearls. Jesus will essentially drop a line. It's, it's like you make references to like, I don't know, I just said uh, fat guy in a little coat. And you're like, oh, Tommy boy, if you're, I don't, I'm just, I'm a millennial. So I have these references in my mind. But if somebody said, oh, milk was a bad choice today, I'd be like, I know what you're talking about. And if you know, you know. And I'm not going to tell you. But this is what Jesus would do with his audience. He'd say these things, and they would, for those who had ears to hear, and it was most of his audience because they grew up in an oral tradition where they were singing these songs and telling these stories. And when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land, capital L, it would populate a song in their mind. This is Psalm 37. And just to get the picture of this, I'm going to read through this. And just, this would be like the, the thing in the forefront of their imagination. And so let's just take this in. Do not fret because of those who are evil. Or be envious of those who do wrong for like grass. They will soon wither like green plants. They will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Or, or that could be feast on faithfulness. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. What will he do? He'll have you dwell in the land and feast on faithfulness or enjoy safe pasture. He will make your righteousness he will make your righteous reward like shine like the dawn and your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. And then here it is but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So the question that this song is asking, and you could just go through the rest of this Psalm, Psalm 37, and you'll see time and time again, the wicked are addressed, what's gonna happen to them? These themes are recurring. Who are the type of people? Who's gonna dwell in the land? And as you read through it, it becomes abundantly clear that the poet is saying, it's those who do good. It's those who wait on the Lord. It's those who commit their way or their whole life to the Lord. It is the meek. It's the gentle. 
They are the ones who will inherit. They will be, because of the, their, because of the family they are in, this is what they get. They get the promises of God fulfilled. And even though it looks like the wicked have kind of consolidated all of the wealth and they can just keep doing whatever they want and then they can take their friends into space because, hey, you were on a a show about space, so uh, that's a reference to SpaceX, whatever. Um, Even though it looks like the wicked have consolidated all the wealth and there's no justice, the poet makes this claim that the current state of affairs will not remain the same. So when Jesus drops this line, You're just like, does he have a hammer? He said, no. There's a different way to be human. It's called the kingdom of God. See, Jesus, he emphasizes the inheritance of the land in effect to say that the days of the wicked are numbered. They will pass away because there's another way, which is actually an old way, and it's this way of enduring oppression. This is what Jesus will go on, and we'll cover this. We're not going to be able to get to it in full, but this is nonviolent enemy love. In Matthew chapter 5, there's going to be a number of moments, and we'll take some time to observe what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus and to practice nonviolence as a way of Jesus. And we'll have these things rise up in us as we talk about nonviolence, the whataboutisms. What about if somebody shows up in your home to do X, Y, and Z to your family? Okay, we'll like attend to those. But we're gonna, what we want to do is we want to start from the scriptures. We want to start from where Jesus is leading us into this conversation. Because Jesus is imagining a new place where the wicked will actually fade away. They will be no more. And those who are righteous, they will be vindicated. And you remember how Jesus is the one who embodies the way of meekness? He comes in meek and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is doing something differently, and it stands out because even in Jesus' day, there's those who have the mantra in their mind, well, if you can't beat them, join them. These are the tax collectors who literally join up with Rome to put tolls on the people. So if Rome is saying, hey, okay, 80% of your goods, you, you, just, you had a really great day out on the Sea of Galilee, we're going we're gonna to need that. And then, then these toll workers or these tax collectors would say, it's actually 90% today. And if you made a fuss because you knew the rate, there's Roman centurions standing behind to enforce the amount that you want to skim off the top. And so the tax collectors are dealing with oppression by saying, if you can't beat them, join them. But that's not the only way. There's other people. These are the hyper-religious who they say, okay, if we, if we attend to the law of God, this is a gift given to the people of God. If we attend to it and everyone starts to live like a priest, if, if we are clean like priests, if we eat like priests, if we live like them, by the way, that costs a lot of money to do. But if we do that, then God will look on us and say, finally, their act is together. Yes, I will deliver you from oppression. It's this like subtle form of emotional and spiritual manipulation, like trying to contrive a response from God. Not that that's irrelevant or anything uh, or relevant, but these are the Pharisees. They're trying to deal with oppression in that way, hyper-religiosity. And then there's those who make political alliances. They're not necessarily going to join them, but they're going to cozy up to them. These are the Sadducees. And then there's this less popular but certainly present violent impulse. These are the people called the Daggermen, epic name. Uh, the lace stace. Jesus is hanging next to some lace stace on the cross. These, this impulse, this violent impulse, will later be known as the Zealots. 
These are all ways to respond to life under oppression. But Jesus is saying there is another way to endure the oppression, to actually absorb it into your body so that it goes no further. And it's kind of easy for me to talk about self-restraint and like Christocentric nonviolence because I'm a white dude living in America. And like the, the most of oppression I will get is like if somebody says, a, I don't know, a spicy thing to me because I follow Jesus and have like a, a, I don't know, historical sex ethic or something like that. And that, that is, and that's certainly to be a cognitive minority, to think differently. There is some payout for that, but this is a little bit different here. And this is, this shakes me that Jesus is outlining a new way to be human, and he's saying endure oppression because the vindication of the righteous will come. And he's saying it to people who are actually in the midst of that. And, and as I was thinking about that hinge upon which this little verse swings, this language of inheritance, it has nothing to do with earning. This is like the beauty of the gospel is that the inheritance that is given, the capital L land, it has nothing to do with the earning. It's designated by birth. It's as though there's this family whose wealth is secure beyond the circumstances. It can be a war-torn area. They can actually have conflict internal, external, but the inheritance is secure. And it's when Jesus starts talking about meekness, it's like he's looking at these people and going, you have, you have your mother's eyes. It's like, this is something that you didn't choose, but this is something that's a part of the family. It's like this new family trait. It's almost as though Jesus is saying there's a new family on the horizon that has a different way of living and it looks like this. And if you're a part of this family, you'll exhibit some of those traits just like when someone looks at you and says, oh yeah, you have your dad's nose. It's that type of connection because it's just woven into who you are. And this is where I hope we head as a community. What would it look like in the city of Des Moines for there to be a people who didn't stand left or right or center as though that's the place where Christians stand, but rather they loved the people on their left and their right and right in front of them indiscriminately. And when like their anger or their frustration came, they actually received it with compassion. This would be crazy. And it would be messy and it would be beautiful. And I think that this is what Jesus is, is leading us to. And I love how this is framed up by Scott McKnight. And we'll kind of wrap it up here. He says this, meekness is framed over against wrath, anger, violence, acquisitiveness, rapaciousness, theft, violent takeovers, and brutal reclamations of property. The meek are unlike the zealots who used violence to seize the land. The meek chose they chose to absorb unjust conditions in a form of nonviolent, non-retaliatory resistance that creates a calm, counter-cultural community of love, justice, and peace. In other words, there is another way to be human. And Jesus is saying, it's possible to endure oppression and come out the other side. After Jesus rolls in on that donkey, and he flips some tables over, which some see as like this inciting incident to his death, the ultimate offense. Jesus is hung on a Roman execution rack, but does Jesus stay dead? This is the great enduring claim of followers of Jesus is that death actually is not the end. 
And it's not about like some escape to the immaterial. Jesus comes back in a new body, never to perish again. And he shows us that there is indeed a way where you can die for your enemies. And what does Jesus do when he's hanging on the cross? He prays for those people who are killing him. And I've been thinking, I've been racking my mind, how in the world do you do this? Like my three-year-old offends me and I am infuriated. And he doesn't have like a prefrontal cortex. He doesn't know what he's doing. It's like an impulse. He wants to like unspool all of the toilet paper. And I'm like, what are you doing? You will spool it back up with me. Literally, this happened last night. Who is this Jesus? What is this life? What is this love? How did he do this? By the Spirit. How will we become people who are able to endure oppression, whether it's interpersonally, whether it's like the people who love us the most are generally the ones who offend us the most. How are we going to endure this? By the power of the Spirit. Why do we ask the Spirit to come and join us? Because we want to be the people who can actually endure it. This is the hope on offer. Yielding. So how does that feel? I don't, I don't know. But I want to leave you with these words from Brendan Manning, and we're going to take the bread and the cup. So if you would, stand with me. Because in order to yield, we're going to have to do, we're going to have to participate in the yielding. This isn't something that you passively do. This is an active thing. And Brendan Manning says this. He says, the art of gentleness toward ourselves leads to being gentle with others. You could say it this way, the art of yielding toward ourselves leads us to yielding with others, and it's the natural prerequisite for our presence to God in prayer. See, if we're going to become the type of women and men for whom our natural response is to yield, um, there's actually an invitation to do that with God. And so I don't know like what in your inner woman or your inner man, you are like, yes, Jesus, you can have this in my life. You can have this in my life. And sure, maybe that area in like five years or when I'm done pursuing this. But what if Jesus is here today saying, why not just a little bit? Maybe I, maybe I can do some, some stuff there. Maybe I can bring some healing there. Maybe, what, just maybe. And what if this doesn't have to be private any longer? What if you can begin to share this in community? I hope that we leave with more questions than we find answers, but certainly the reality that God is with us. Mm -hmm.